0: Welcome to Conference Coverage, presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day, featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference and Exhibition, held October 2nd through the 5th, 2010, in San Francisco. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, your host.
1: And I'm Sue Bird. This year's conference focused on advances in the health, safety, and well-being of infants, children, adolescents, and young adults, and attracted over 8,000 participants from around the world. Several studies presented at the conference focused on external factors impacting the parent-child relationship. In one such study, researchers at the Boston University Medical Center found higher levels of unemployment associated with an increased incidence of child maltreatment. Each 1% rise in unemployment correlated with an increase of at least 0.5 per 1,000 confirmed child maltreatment reports one year later. This study's lead investigator said the message for clinicians is that unemployment can cause a great deal of family stress, which can lead to child maltreatment. The authors concluded that their findings may indicate particular need for investment in child abuse prevention and treatment programs as unemployment rises.
0: In a study evaluating disaster relief efforts, investigators found that pediatric medical response to a major disaster, such as an earthquake, should focus first on protection of life and limb, followed by continuing care and humanitarian aid. Investigators evaluated medical response efforts on the U.S. naval ship Comfort following the earthquake in Haiti on January 12, 2010. Over 931 critically injured patients were treated. 35% of these patients were children. The case mix was heavily weighted towards orthopedic surgery, with patients returning to the OR up to eight times. Amputations accounted for 6.5% of cases, with the vast majority arriving to the hospital ship with limbs already amputated. The lead author of this study, Dr. Sean David Safford, said in a statement that the response in Haiti differed from other humanitarian efforts as it more closely resembled a wartime or military response. The investigator's proposal of a three-phase response model for pediatric patients during disaster relief has not been previously described. The first phase focuses on triaging patients requiring life- and limb-saving measures. The second phase involves those patients who were able to survive with or without medical care. At this juncture, researchers said that plastic and general surgeons can aid in the management of complex wounds and attempting limb salvage. Lastly, Phase 3 represents the transition from disaster response to humanitarian response, whereby all medical specialties can play a critical role in developing current and future healthcare strategies.
1: In another study evaluating pediatric disaster relief efforts in Haiti, Investigators at Miami Children's Hospital in Florida found that response to a major disaster in a highly populated area requires the development of a pediatric field facility with child-specific medical and surgical subspecialists. Researchers made this assessment after the January 2010 earthquake of a pediatric field hospital in Port-au-Prince. They learned that during the first five days of the facility's operation— 93% of pediatric patients were surgical specialty admissions, mostly for fractures and wounds. But over time, the facility needed to evolve from a disaster relief center into a pediatric hospital with intensive care capacity, which required changes in equipment and medical staffing. 80% of patients ultimately required general pediatric and neonatal care, and only 20% required admission for surgical issues. The researchers concluded that rapid response to a major disaster in a highly populated area necessitates the development of a specialty pediatric field facility. Requirements for this facility center on staff and equipment choices, including systems for dealing with medical records, mental stress on the staff, and ethical dilemmas.
0: Investigators at the Loma Linda University Children's Hospital in California found that mothers who received support and encouragement during the first two months after childbirth were more likely to prolong breastfeeding and unlikely to return to smoking. Their study examined the usefulness of stress reduction as a means of preventing postpartum smoking relapses in women who quit tobacco products during pregnancy. It's been previously shown that over 50% of women who quit smoking during pregnancy would relapse within two to eight weeks after they deliver. Additionally, Mothers who smoke are more than twice as likely to quit breastfeeding by 10 weeks postpartum. For this study, mothers who had quit smoking during or just prior to pregnancy and whose newborns were admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit of their hospital were randomized to either a relapse prevention group or a standard care group. Since stress was one of the major reasons given for smoking relapse, investigators evaluated the effectiveness of reducing stress through active support of a mother's attachment with their hospitalized infant, as well as encouraging her to remain smoke-free and to continue breastfeeding her baby. Mothers in the relapse prevention group were given interventions to support mother-infant bonding during their newborns' hospitalization. These interventions included information about normal newborn behaviors and the encouragement of skin-to-skin holding. At 8 weeks postpartum, 81% of mothers in the intervention group remained smoke-free as compared to 46% of mothers in the standard care group. Also, of mothers in the intervention group continued breastfeeding, while only 21% continued to breastfeed in the standard care group. The lead author of this study concluded in a statement that hospitalization of a newborn offers the opportunity to support mothers in bonding with their infants during a time of significant stress.
1: Child safety was a prominent theme of this year's conference. And in one study, researchers at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center found that only a small percentage of preteen babysitters receive safety training, which could lead to an unsafe environment for both the babysitter and the children under their care. Researchers administered a questionnaire to a sample of preteen babysitters between the ages of 11 and 13 years old. This included skill assessments from the American Red Cross Safe Sitter Program, as well as first aid and CPR skills, knowledge of emergency contacts and location of emergency equipment, and personal experience with emergencies requiring 911 activation while babysitting. Of the 737 respondents who had cared for a younger child or infant, Only 19% had gone through safety training in an American Red Cross safe-sitter or other babysitting safety class, and about half had learned first aid or been trained in CPR. The majority of preteen babysitters, between 96 and 98%, were familiar with who to contact in the event of an intruder, a fire, or a sick or injured child. The most common emergencies requiring 911 activation included, in order of prevalence, a significant fall a house fire, profuse bleeding from a laceration, and significant head trauma. Eighty-five percent of respondents were familiar with whom to contact in the event of a poisoning. Ninety-two percent were familiar with where to find first aid supplies, and sixty-four percent knew where in the home to locate a fire extinguisher. Several safety concerns arose from the questionnaire, as some preteen babysitters reported leaving younger children unattended and Opening the Door to Strangers. The lead author of the study stressed the importance for parents and physicians to review safety knowledge with preteen babysitters and to educate preteens about providing a safe environment for child care with tools to respond with in the event of an emergency.
0: A study presented at the conference by researchers at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, showed that African-American women are less likely to initiate and continue breastfeeding than women of other races. Investigators cited a lack of desire as the most common reason among respondents to discontinue breastfeeding. The purpose of this study was to identify potential barriers that contribute to disparities in breastfeeding across racial groups, as studied in an urban population associated with a large teaching hospital. The open-ended question, is there any particular reason why you chose not to breastfeed, was posed to mothers who were exclusively formula feeding during the postnatal period. Responses were recorded verbatim and coded into the following categories, easily modifiable barriers, such as fear of pain, latching problems, milk supply issues, or misinformation, and barriers that are not easily modifiable, such as lack of self-efficacy, lack of desire, previous formula feeding history, return to work or school, or true contraindications. 62 African-American women and 83 women of other racial groups participated in this study. Among the African-American women, nearly 25% reported easily modifiable barriers to breastfeeding, compared with 42% of women of other races. However, 89% of African-American women reported barriers that were not easily modifiable, compared with 74% of women of other races. The most common barrier to breastfeeding in both groups was lack of desire to breastfeed. Another barrier commonly reported in the African-American group was misinformation about breastfeeding. The authors of this study concluded that a need clearly exists for structured and coordinated breastfeeding education for mothers and their families and for clarification of misinformation and myths about breastfeeding, both prenatally and during the immediate postnatal period. The authors added that this education should include information on the risks posed by formula feeding exclusively.
1: Researchers at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia reported new interactive gaming devices appear to be associated with more abrasions and injuries of the shoulder, ankle, and foot compared to traditional gaming devices. The relatively new advent of interactive gaming consoles offers a different type of gaming experience than that of traditional video games, one in which the player becomes more physically involved, often allowing the player to physically mime the game movements. It's been noted the popularity of these interactive games has led to a change in the type of injuries sustained by players. Data from video game-related injuries sustained by people of all ages were compiled between 2004 and 9, using the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System database. The database tracks emergency visits due to injuries associated with consumer products. Over the five-year study period, nearly 700 video game-related injuries were reported. Ages ranged from as young as one month old to 86 years old, but the average was 16 and a half years old. Over 90 injuries resulted from modern interactive games, with the majority relating to use of the Nintendo Wii. Compared to those injured while playing traditional video games, interactive game players were significantly more likely to injure the shoulder, ankle, or foot, including contusions, abrasions, sprains, and strain injuries. Injuries to bystanders occurred in both interactive and traditional gaming groups, but were significantly more prevalent with interactive gaming. In addition, the study authors noted that children under 10 years of age should be supervised while video games are being played, as these young children are especially likely to be involved in bystander injuries.
0: And our final report from the conference. About one in eight parents report that his or her child has not received health care as recommended by a pediatrician over the last year. Due to concerns over cost and payment. Data were compiled from a sectional study of parents who completed surveys between July and September of 2009 while their children were being seen at a practice in southwestern Ohio. Nearly 2,000 parents completed the survey. The majority were mothers of Caucasian race with at least a high school education. 61% of the children had some form of private insurance, the rest had public insurance. Researchers found that during the 12 months prior to the survey, 5.5% of children did not see a recommended specialist, 4.7% did not have a lab test, and 8.7% did not fill a prescription because of parents' inability to pay. 7.8% of parents reported that their child's health had suffered due to the cost of care. Additionally, 16.7% of parents reported that compared to three years ago, it was more difficult now to obtain the health care their children needed, More parents whose children had private insurance issued this complaint than those with public insurance. Overall, about 13% of parents reported that they were unable to comply with at least one of their child's clinician's recommendations in the past 12 months due to trouble paying for it. After controlling for other demographic variables using logistic regression, families' annual income between $15,000 and $35,000 was the strongest predictor of children's lack of health care access due to inability to pay. Thank you for listening to Conference Coverage from the American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference and Exhibition, held October 2nd through the 5th, 2010, in San Francisco. Conference Coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD, and powered by HealthDay.